Praised be Jesus Christ. And good morning. Welcome to another episode of In Your Embrace podcast. This morning, um, I'm very pleased to uh, have the opportunity to record this at all. It's just after 6 o'clock a.m. And uh, I'm out walking around the perimeter of the seminary, around our, our campus. Um, I uh, was preparing my schedule for the day last night and realized as I was laying out the various events that I have to do and scheduling out my priorities for the day that I would simply not have any time to record this podcast unless I did something very drastic, which would be to uh, wake up an hour earlier. Remember, I'm waking up at five every day. So today I chose to wake up at four so that I would have time to be able to record this this morning because otherwise I just knew there was not going to be any way to get it in today. It's a very busy time right now for us at St. Patrick's, especially those of us who have the honor of being from the Archdiocese of Portland, subjects of His Grace, Archbishop Alexander King Sample, because our Lord Archbishop is visiting us right now here at St. Patrick's and we have the honor of hosting him. So, of course, I, I'm, I'm joking a little bit. Uh, you know, we don't treat him with that much deference. And, uh, and he gives as good as he gets. So, we're, no, we're very happy to have him here for a few days. Uh, he arrived yesterday. We uh, went out to dinner with him at a local Italian place. And he joined us for prayer and uh, holy hour last night. This morning, he's celebrating the Mass. Um, I'll be serving as acolyte for his Mass. Another seminarian deacon, a friend of mine, Deacon Randy, is down here visiting as well from Portland. They traveled down together. Um, yeah, and then throughout the day today, we, uh, each of us seminarians here at St. Patrick's, have the opportunity for one-on-one -on -one meetings with the Archbishop and just to check in. We'll have dinner with him again tonight with um, at the home of a, a benefactor of our seminary who's graciously invited us over. And then tomorrow morning, Archbishop will be celebrating the Mass and um, giving the address for the 2020 Walk for Life in San Francisco. So he'll be able to celebrate Mass at the San Francisco Cathedral. This is a huge event. Um, it's, it draws people, mostly Catholics, Christians of all denominations, as well as non-Christians, um, from all over the West Coast at least, probably further afield even than that. So it's a great honor uh, that he was asked by our local Archbishop of San Francisco to come down here and to celebrate the Mass. And uh, then he'll be departing on Saturday. Also, as I said, you know, groups are coming from all over the West Coast. We have groups of seminarians coming to stay with us here at St. Pat's, coming down from Mount Angel in Oregon, coming from Bishop White in Spokane, some coming up, I believe, from St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, near Los Angeles. So everyone is converging here <laughs> in Menlo Park. And uh, so we're busy making some preparations for that, as well as spending time with our Archbishop. So it's quite busy. Of course, on top of all of this, well, rather, I should say beneath all of this, this is all added on top, but beneath all of this, we still have our normal round of readings for our classes and homework we have to do, and then our own commitments as well. 
um, the community prayers, our own times of prayer, and the various things that we undertake on our own for our own apostolic work, such as this podcast. So all that to say, this is why I'm up recording so very early <laughs> on a Friday morning. And uh, it's before the dawn, the birds are not even singing yet. Certainly no seminarians are singing yet. As I look back at the building, I don't see anybody's lights on, on this side at least. I think on the other side I saw a couple of lights. So it's very, very good. Thanks be to God. Well, let's just uh, go ahead and get started. Um, I, uh, I guess I have one story I can relate about the week before we start talking about today's saint. Last weekend, you'll remember we had a free weekend. If you listened to the last podcast, and I was recording on Friday. Well, on Saturday, I made a trip down to Carmel-by-the-Sea, a beautiful town uh, about an hour and a half away from Menlo Park. It's right on the California coast, down near Monterey. And um, I went there with kind of a, a plan in mind. My idea was just to have a day out, to have kind of a day away from the seminary um, because of, you know, of the four-day weekend, pretty much two, two days were eaten up with homework and then a third day with apostolic work, field education. So I thought, well, I'll just take advantage of Saturday and I'll really, I'll try to just get away and I won't do any homework and I'll just spend some time out, kind of a good recreation. So, and none of the brothers were able to join me, so I just went on my own down to Carmel. And it was such a wonderful opportunity. I visited the mission there, which is called Mission San Carlos Borromeo, St. Charles Borromeo, founded by St. Nipero Serra. It was said to be his favorite of the California missions. And uh, in fact, it was where he died, and his remains are interred there in the sanctuary of the mission chapel. Really a beautiful mission. I've, I've been to about four or five California missions now. This was by far my favorite. It, was, uh, it has a real grace and elegance to it. It's really just a beautiful place. And what's more, what I really loved about it is there was such a spirit of reverence there. There was one mission that I visited, I don't remember where just now, maybe San Juan Bautista, uh, shortly after I, I came here to California. I was so disedified when I went there. It was, uh, it, was, it was a lovely place, I mean, but it seemed like it was just being treated as a museum. There was still an active Catholic parish, and the Blessed Sacrament was there, reserved in the chapel, but there were these huge tour groups coming through, and they're all laughing and chattering on the top of their voices, and taking selfies, and it was just not a very prayerful or reverent environment. So I was prepared for the worst, when I went to Carmel, and instead, I, I really got the best. <laughs> it was, I stayed there for about three hours, just in the mission, which I had not planned to do. But uh, I, I sort of couldn't tear myself away. I kept going back three or four times into the, the chapel to pray again. At the, I was just kneeling there at the altar rail, looking at, um, they had a, a portrait on a stand of Sino Nipro Serra, which was placed just behind his tomb, I suppose, his sepulchre, which is set into the floor. Um, and it's right there between the altar rail and then the high altar, where the Blessed Sacrament is enthroned in the tabernacle. So I, I went back several times just to kneel there and to pray and 
I, I was really moved by the Holy Spirit, I think, because um, I, while there, I went through the museum. They have a wonderful museum, which exhibits uh, a lot of, of details about his life. And they show some things that he owned and just give a lot of information about who he was. I, I learned a lot about him while I was there. But what I was inspired to pray for was a renewal of the kind of missionary zeal that St. Nipro Sarah had uh, for the Lord to raise up new missionaries in his spirit, you know, like in the spirit and power of St. Nipro Sarah. And what was so revealing about him, they had in the, in the museum, they had um, several quotes from his letters and his journals displayed on the walls. I thought it was quite remarkable because it's a secular museum. I think it's run by the state of California, I think. I, I, really, I don't know. I guess I'm just presuming that. But I found it remarkable. They put all these quotes up and they're so, so incredibly Catholic. Uh, St. Junipero's you know, he's, he's evidencing uh, the same kind of fears that apostles and missionaries always have, in my experience. You know, there's, there's one quote where he's praying for the strength to be a faithful witness among the people. And so I, I, just, I found him so inspiring. I found it to be a really reinvigorating time that I spent there with the spirit of St. Junipero Serra, asking for his prayers, praying for the Lord to stir up in us again that spirit of missionary zeal to not let St. Nipro's labors go to waste because uh, what he worked for so ardently this is one thing I learned in the museum you know he, he constructed this wonderful mission system well not too long after his death um, under the secularization of Mexico which at that time owned California the missions were abandoned and were allowed to fall into disrepair. And I thought, wow, what a, what a symbol that is of the church right now in the West, all, all over the Western world. But in the United States in particular, we don't have a, a legal mandate of secularization yet. Pray God it doesn't come to pass. But our culture is so heavily secularized and the church is falling into ruin, you know. But I did have a sign of hope while I was there, even more than, uh, than the sign of St. Nipro Sarah himself, and coming to know his, his life and his person and asking his prayers. The Lord gave me a, a little sign, which was, I went to a low mass that morning in the extraordinary form, and the priest was celebrating the mass of the chair of St. Peter at Rome. And I was a bit confused as to why, because uh, as I was praying my breviary that morning, that feast, I didn't. It didn't show up. It, you know, in the normal cycle of feasts in my breviary, it was just uh, it was a Saturday memorial of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is what you get every Saturday if there's not a special feast that day. Then we dedicate the Saturday to Mary. So I was praying those prayers, and then I was surprised to arrive at, at the Mass and find that the readings and prayers at the Mass were all for St. Peter. So I was a bit befuddled about that. Later I came to find out that that was an older feast day that was later suppressed, but this congregation of priests who run the parish that I went to that day, they have special permission to uh, use some feasts from the older calendar. So that, anyway, that solved that mystery. 
But before I had solved the mystery, and I was still kind of wondering about it, when I was walking through the museum in Carmel, Carmel Mission, I espied a little missile, like a, a, a hand missile that the lay faithful would use to follow the Mass. And it was open, it was under glass, it was for the old rite of the Mass, the ex now, now called the Extraordinary Form, which was then just called the Mass. And uh, I took a look at it, and guess what page it was open to? I, I saw in the top corner, January 18th, the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter at Rome. And I was sort of floored by that. I thought, wow, God, what are you trying to tell me by this? Because what are the odds? I mean, I'm sure no one goes in there and changes the pages of that missile, you know, <laughs> to update to the current day or whatever. It just happened to be open to that feast day. So I thought, well, what are you trying to show me by this? And then a little bit later, I saw there was a little section of stone wall with a plaque on it that said, this is the only standing wall of the original mission church. And this is the only thing that Junipero Serra would recognize if he were alive and walking around in California today. And then it clicked for me and I thought, nope. <laughs> Sorry, but you're dead wrong. There's at least two things St. Junipero Serra would recognize. One, maybe this little chunk of indistinguishable wall. Two, if the good Lord were to raise him from his tomb this morning, that morning, Saint Edipero Serra could have picked up that missile and, uh, and celebrated the very mass that I went to exactly as it was. And that gave me such a feeling of consolation. And not that it was just any mass, but it was the mass of the Feast of the Chair of Saint Peter at Rome, which is a mass that really emphasizes for us the unity of the church as one body under her head, Saint Peter. And through the successors of St. Peter, the Pope, who is the sign of our Christian unity, the Church, you know, Christ guaranteed when he promised to St. Peter that on this rock, Petros, Peter, I will build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Christ promised us victory. He promised the Church would be triumphant. And in Christ, we are already triumphant. We are already victorious. We're just, we're living in the tension of already but not yet, you know. So we see all around us as every age in the church sees. We see those who betray their vocations by the way they live their lives. We see mediocrity on all sides. We see lukewarmness, apathy, faithlessness. We see a culture that is rapidly turning against us. And what are we gonna do? Are we gonna give in? Are we gonna run and turn tail and give up the fight? Absolutely not. Every age, I mean, every age has their own problems, you know. <laughs> Not, we're worse off than some, for sure. But we're better off than others. It doesn't do us any good to compare. But it does do us great good to reflect on the continuity of the church and of the victory which Christ promised us. And so I took that as a great sign of hope. And... Uh, I was praying that St. Onipro Serra will intercede for me. He, uh, he, you know, he knows the fears of my heart because he experienced them himself. And so I asked with great simplicity for him to pray for me that I would receive all the graces that the Lord gave him 
to be a faithful witness, um, to be a model of charity as he was, and to spread the gospel by words and by deeds. Now, in light of that, Sinodipro Sarah, a very good saint, but he is not the saint of today. So I want to take a few minutes to talk to you about Saint Timothy, the saint of the day. Did you know that we are called to be saints? What is a saint? Well, a saint means one who is holy. Now, readers of the New Testament are very familiar with Saint Timothy, although it might be a little bit strange at first to refer to him as saint. But we do know him from the letters of Saint Paul. Saint Paul wrote two letters to Timothy. In fact, his second letter to Timothy was probably the last letter that he ever wrote, written by Paul while he was imprisoned at Rome. And we know from the Acts of the Apostles that Saint Paul met Saint Timothy when he was on his first, I believe his first missionary journey, maybe second, when he went to visit the city of Lystra near Iconium. And so there's a great story recounted in Acts 14 where St. Paul and St. Barnabas arrive in the town of Lystra and they begin preaching as they always do. And St. Paul heals a man who's been lame from birth. So he raises him up in the name of Christ Jesus. The man gets to his feet and walks and the people marvel. But we get a hint of the kind of paganism that was prevalent in Lystra because uh, it tells us that the men of the city came out and began to worship Paul and Barnabas as if they were gods. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercury because they'd seen them do this amazing miracle. And they figured, well, anyone who can do this must not be just a man. He must be a god, kind of a demigod, a, par a partaker in godness. <laughs> Which in a way, they're on the right track but they totally went anyway they went the wrong direction <laughs> so they come out and they're worshiping paul and barnabas as if they're these greek gods the roman gods <sighs> and paul begins to you know i think i think acts says he tears his garments which is a great wonderful jewish thing to do <laughs> to express your total like ah <laughs> like how can you be so stupid <laughs> and then he begins to exhort them and say, look, look at us. We're flesh and blood just like you are. We're not gods. We're here to announce the one true God, the creator who made the heavens and the earth and all that they contain. Don't worship us, worship him. He sent us to tell you about him. So <laughs> we get this wonderful story about, about Lystra. Now, Timothy was a young man in Lystra when St. Paul arrived and with Barnabas also. Timothy, uh, he was the child of a Jewish mother and a Gentile pagan father. So he grew up knowing the scriptures, but he was not circumcised. He was not part of the, of the uh, Jewish people in that sense. He was not made part of the covenant. His mother and his grandmother were both well-known and, and really respected in the community, the Jewish community for their faith. And when Paul arrived preaching about Jesus, the Messiah, the family converted. Then Paul and Barnabas left, and upon their return, they found that Timothy had attained 
to a position of of some standing, dignity in the community. He was well respected, like his mother and his grandmother were before him, for his faith, for his knowledge of the scriptures, etc. And so Paul invites Timothy to travel with him, to go with him as he continues on his missionary journey. And Timothy right away leaves everything behind and he travels with St. Paul onto his next stop. So Timothy goes on with St. Paul. St. Paul Um, eventually ordains him as a priest and then as a bishop and he leaves him in Ephesus as the bishop the bishop there the city of Ephesus the city of Ephesus was also well known for pagan idolatry especially the cult of the goddess Diana and so we hear this morning in the readings of the breviary the story of St. Timothy's martyrdom And it's very interesting to reflect on Timothy, who comes from Lystra, this city where the people came out and tried to worship Paul and Barnabas as if they were gods, who then goes on to become the bishop of Ephesus, this city where the people are mad for the worship of Diana. So in the the martyrdom of St. Timothy, we hear that the people of Ephesus were about to celebrate this feast of Diana called the Catagogia. And on this feast, all the people of the city kind of assembled in, in troops and they arrayed themselves as if for battle with a, a club in one hand and an idol of Diana in the other. And they all took to the streets. And it sounds kind of like uh, they're starting a riot, you know, <laughs> they're going out looking for trouble. <laughs> and so uh, St. Timothy, the Bishop Timothy and his zeal, he goes out among them to preach the gospel. And the, the mob, in their fury, club him to death. The uh, reading from the breviary notes that the other Christians came to rescue their bishop, but by the time they could carry him away, he was more dead than alive. So they took him away out of the city to a, a hill, a place of peace, and there Timothy died with the name of Jesus Christ on his lips. So it's quite an affecting story. And it makes one wonder, you know, what is it that, what is it that makes one capable of martyrdom? What are the ingredients, if you will, the elements that go into making a martyr, preparing one to, to rush into the midst of a crowd like that and proclaim the gospel without fear? Because Timothy, we, we don't know very much about St. Timothy in one sense, but we can get a, kind of a picture of him, you know, from the letters of St. Paul. Uh, St. Paul was really a spiritual father to Timothy. He really, really was. In fact, in, I believe in the first letter to Timothy, he addressed him as my true son. And in another place, he calls him my dear child. You know? So St. Paul is, is his spiritual father. And St. Paul with great charity and gentleness, we, we see the ways that he's exhorting St. Timothy to uh, better fulfill his duties as a pastor, as bishop in Ephesus. And so he tells him not to be timid, not to let anyone despise him because of his youth, because by the time he was made bishop, I mean, St. Timothy was still quite young. He tells him to treat everyone in the Christian community there in Ephesus as if they are his family. Younger men as if they're brothers, older men as if they're fathers. 
Younger women like sisters, older women like mothers. <laughs> but to remember that he has charge over all. To set a good example for all. And to be steadfast in faith until the end. And we know St. Paul, in another place, he, he, he's exhorting the people to be imitators of him as he's an imitator of Christ. And we see that in the life of Timothy, I think. St. Timothy is imitating Paul, who's imitating Christ. So St. Paul becomes an icon of Christ. St. Timothy is imitating Paul, then he becomes an icon of Christ. And that's kind of how we learn. We learn by modeling. So St. Timothy modeling himself on Paul. What are the elements he learns from Paul? To be steadfast to the end, to endure persecutions joyfully, to expect them really, to know that the life of a Christian, the, the lot of a Christian is to be persecuted, just as our Lord was persecuted. St. Timothy, we know from the letter to the Hebrews, ended up imprisoned at one time, just as Paul was frequently imprisoned. And so we see this, the disciple becomes like the master, the son becomes like the father. But I think we can, we can really identify two elements in St. Timothy's life that led him to make this courageous act of martyrdom. One is his close association with St. Paul, to be sure, modeling himself on St. Paul as his spiritual father. But the other, I think, is his upbringing in Lystra and his close association with the pagans who were there. His own father was one of the pagans of Lystra. So he knows what they're like. In fact, he himself was called out from among them in a certain sense to be united to the body of Christ by St. Paul. So he knows the pagans. He knows what they're like. He knows what their worship is like. He's experienced firsthand their persecutions, their rituals, their bloodthirsty sacrifices. And he knows firsthand too the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So St. Timothy, knowing on the one hand the futility, the bloodlust, the pointlessness, if you will, of the Catagogia rites, knowing on the other hand the goodness and the mercy and the satisfaction of being a disciple of Christ Jesus, he goes into their midst with boldness. He knows everything they might do to him, but he's not afraid. Because he knows that the gift that he has first received from Jesus through the hands of St. Paul, his spiritual father, which he is now entrusted to pass on to them, is of so much greater value than whatever damage they might do to his body. It's not even worth considering. It's not even worth weighing in a balance. You know, what's worth more, the gospel or my life? It's not even a question for him. He goes, boldness is almost not even the right word. He goes without considering the cost. And he gives his life, which becomes really the seed of the church in Ephesus. Yeah? Tertullian says the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. St. Paul planted the church by his preaching, by his teaching in Ephesus, but St. Timothy watered it with his blood. So St. Timothy is a wonderful intercessor for us. I think he's a great model for seminarians <laughs> and for young priests especially. Because St. Paul exhorts him, as I said, don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. 
in a sense, don't let them count you out just because you're young. Huh? But set a good example for all. And above all, remain steadfast in faith to the end. So St. Timothy, pray for us. All the world's a stage. And all the men and women merely players. Now I'm running out of time here, so I'm, I might have to cut this a little bit short. As I said, it is early in the morning and I'm going to have to go soon for morning prayer. However, I did want to share with you a little bit about uh, the part two of King Henry VI, which is the work that's assigned for us this week in Ian Desher's Shakespeare 2020 project. So I haven't finished it yet. Currently I'm about uh, two-thirds of the way through the play. But I wanted to share a little bit about the character of King Henry VI. We touched on it last week with part one. In part one, the sense we mainly get of King Henry VI is that he's inexperienced. He's had leadership thrust upon him when his father died. The glory is King Henry V, who really established the reign of England throughout all France. And so with Henry VI, we kind of see him, he's, uh, he's making some rash decisions when he sends Talbot to go and confront the French, just kind of shout, over, shout a challenge over their walls. Uh, he's kind of letting himself be ruled a little bit by his advisors rather than ruling them with a strong hand. In part two of, this, of the three-part cycle of King Henry VI, though, we really see, we see him retreating, I think, from the necessities of leadership. And there's this wonderful soliloquy by Queen Margaret. You remember Margaret of Anjou, this young lady from France, whom the Duke of Suffolk has kind of, uh, he's fallen in love with. And he's conspired to have her married off to the king so that then he can kind of carry on his own affair with her and eventually come to power in the, in the kingdom. Well, Queen Margaret is not, she does not come off as a very likable figure in this play, by the way, because she's just as scheming as the rest of them. But she does give this wonderful soliloquy in Act One of the play. And uh, I have it here, I'll quote it for you. It gives you a sense both of, of her character, but also the character of the king. So she, she says, the, the thing is, all the lords and Queen Margaret too are all trying to get rid of Gloucester, the Duke of Gloucester, who is the Lord Protector of the kingdom. And he, in a way, is kind of a spiritual father to Henry VI, because his own father has passed away, but he's left Gloucester kind of in charge of his son until he reaches his majority. So Gloucester is a man of great prudence and wisdom, gentleness, perspicacity, man of virtue. But all these other lords who are jockeying for power want to get Gloucester out of the way, you know, by hook or by crook, however they can do it. And King Henry, King Henry loves Gloucester, but he's also weak, and he's letting himself kind of be pushed around by the lords. Now, here's Queen Margaret. She's kind of ranting here against Henry VI's uh, weakness, her own husband's weakness. So she says, what? Shall King Henry be a pupil still under the surly Gloucester's governance? Am I a queen in title and in style, yet must be made a subject to a duke? I tell thee, Paul, that's Suffolk. I tell thee, Paul, when in the city tours thou ranst to tilt in honor of my love and stolst away the ladies' hearts of France, I thought King Henry had resembled thee in courage, courtship, and proportion. But all his mind is bent to holiness, 
to number Ave Maris on his beads. His champions are the prophets and apostles. His weapons, holy saws of sacred writ. His study is his tilt yard, and his loves are brazen images of canonized saints. I would the colleges of the cardinals would choose him pope and carry him to Rome and set the triple crown upon his head. That were a state fit for his holiness. <laughs> now, you might think that I'm inclined to defend King Henry in this, and in a way I am. But really, what we see with King Henry VI, I think, is he is so overwhelmed by the demands of his office, which far exceed his capacities. He's a young man, he's naive, inexperienced, and he's suddenly been thrust into the kingship of all of England and England's protectorates in France, you know, and elsewhere abroad, like Ireland, where there comes to be this enormous uprising later on in the play. So he's put in charge of all of this land, and he has to, he has to be the one to rule it. He's entrusted, if you remember from a few weeks ago, he's entrusted with the munus regendi, with the office of ruling, and he's just not up to it. And so we see him, we see him retreat from the munus regendi into the offices of piety, of sanctifying. And he becomes, in a way, a very pious person, and he gives great honor to God, and he loves to spend his time in prayers, like Queen Margaret says, counting Ave Maris on his beads, <laughs> counting out his Hail Marys, praying his rosary, and so on. If I were the spiritual director for King Henry VI, I think I would tell him this. There's no way to become a saint by dismissing or withdrawing oneself from the duties imposed by your state in life. You know what I mean? You can't become a saint by locking yourself away in your room and praying 50 rosaries per day if meanwhile your family is starving, you know? If you're the father of a family or the mother of a family, part of the duties of your vocation, of your state in life, is to take care of your family. If you're a pastor or priest, part of the duties of your vocation and your state in life is to take care of your flock, to feed them with the body and the blood of Christ, to break open for them the word, to teach them the ways of the Christian life which leads to eternal beatitude, to correct them in error, to heal them when they fall into sin, to encourage them to live a life of virtue. If you're the king of England, <laughs> part of the duties of your state in life include, presumably, uh, <laughs> being aware of your lords who are jockeying for power and having some political acumen, you know, to, to take charge of them. I mean, what we really see them start to run amok, starting in Act 3. They murder Gloucester. And the king, the king just folds. There's one line, I don't have it in front of me, but he basically, he says to them, your word be law. <laughs> Leave me alone, you do as you wish. And they're like, okay. Then they have this conference among themselves, all these lords, and they're bickering, and one of them um, makes a proposal to send another one to Ireland to try to quell this revolution, and the other one says, if his majesty wills it, I'll go. And the first one says, 
ah, His Majesty's will is what we command. See, he's completely given over all his authority to this band of squabbling, petty lords and nobles. And so he's abdicated the duties which are proper to his state in life in order to spend his time in prayer, because that's a retreat. So I would say to King Henry VI, if you really, you really want to spend your life in honor of the Lord, to give glory to God, the way to do it is to be faithful to your vocation. And yes, in this case, leadership was thrust upon you. Huh? It, wasn't, uh, it wasn't your free choice. Well, what is there to do but to be faithful to the end? And to do your best to follow in the footsteps laid before you by your father, by Talbot, who he told you he was the bravest man he ever knew, this man who, by your naivety, really, you sent to his death, to live up to the legacy of Gloucester, this great man of virtue, your father set over you as Lord Protector, to imitate them, imitate their virtue and their strength, and to, to guide these nobles with a strong hand. <laughs> I mean, when I read that line saying, when, the, when, the, when King Henry VI says, let your word be law, or whatever it is, I think I, think I audibly out loud said, no, <laughs> come on. I mean, he's a sympathetic character, but you reach a certain point where you think, you're the king. You have all the power. You could stop all of this at any time. But by your own inaction, you're allowing great evil to come about in the land of England. And so I haven't finished the play yet. Of course, I mean, part two, there's still about a third of the way still to go. And then there's part three also ahead of me. But that's the lesson I'm taking so far from King Henry VI and the lesson that I wanted to share also. Really, it's in two parts. One, the way to sanctity is never fleeing from the duties of your state in life. Rather, the way to sanctity is found precisely in what is required by our vocation. This is a great lesson of St. Therese of Lisieux, who teaches us to do small things with great love, you know. Maybe our vocation requires great things. If you're the king of England, it really requires things that are, you know, acts that are great in worldly terms, but more often for most of us not. But whatever our vocation is, we need to be faithful, both in little things and in great. Strive to do everything with great love and for the honor and the glory of God. And if we do that, like St. Timothy did, and if we remain faithful to the end, there's no question that we'll be great saints in heaven, great friends of God on earth, and honored with a great crown of glory in the life to come. Now, with the few minutes remaining to me before I have to go into the chapel for prayer, I want to share a little bit with you from my classes this week. So let's move on to the topic of theology. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. Charged with the grandeur of God. This week in my class on the letter to the Hebrews, we've been reading, we've been focusing a lot just on the first four verses of Hebrews, which are called by some scholars the prologue to the epistle. And in these first four verses, the author of Hebrews, who's disputed, it might be St. Paul, it might be one of his other disciples, like Apollos or something, but whoever it is, 
the author of these first few verses is really setting before us a, a striking icon of Christ, who Jesus Christ is. And it is very compelling. He, he says, Jesus Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory and the, the character of His impression, I think. I don't remember exactly what the Greek is. But the idea is, one, the radiance of His glory, like the radiance of the sun. The radiance of the rays of the sun is inseparable from the sun itself. You know what I mean? They're of, the, they're of exactly the same substance. That's what Hebrews is conveying. So this Jesus, this is truly the Son of God. He is God come to earth, just as the rays of the sun reach out from the sun and warm all of creation. And then the, if you will, the, the, the uh, character, the imprint of the Father's, like the, the image there, whatever the exact word is, I don't recall, is of like a, a signet ring which is stamped into hot wax. And this would be like, you've heard the term, the seal of one's authority. In the time of St. Paul and, you know, in antiquity, um, a scroll, like a decree, maybe giving law or giving orders from a ruler, would be sealed with wax, would be hot wax placed upon it, and then it would be imprinted with the design of the wearer's ring. And the ring would be the symbol of their authority. So anyone who received that letter, that decree, they would see upon it the unbroken seal of the ruler, and they would know that it really bore the stamp of the ruler's authority, that it really came from them. So we see that with Jesus. And the letter of the Hebrews is, is uh, describing him on the one hand as, as truly God. He is God come among us, walking among us. Every action of Jesus Christ, the man in the flesh, is an action of God, the eternal Son of God. And on the other hand, it gives this image of the signet ring of the seal which further clarifies that Jesus bears the, all the authority of the Father who sent him. The author of Hebrews also calls Jesus the Apostle of God, huh? which is really striking. We think of ourselves as being apostles of Jesus. Apostle means the one who's sent, you know. But Jesus is the Son who's sent by the Father into the world. Now, from that, we can, we can begin to ask the question, why was Jesus sent among us? Why was he sent by the Father into the world? And of course, in, in a way, the answer is, is quite obvious and we know it. <laughs> the Father sent Jesus into the world to redeem us from our sins, to free us from the consequences of sin, namely, foremost among them, death, eternal death, to free us from the power of Satan, our ancient enemy, the enemy of our human nature, the Lord, the master of death, until Christ came bound the strong man, took dominion over death to himself, and life forever conquered death. But St. Athanasius, another great saint of the early church, St. Athanasius identifies in his, his work De Incarnatione Verbi, of the Incarnation of the Word, some other reasons why it was most fitting for the eternal Son of the Father God, the Son, to become a man. And I found these reasons to be really compelling and really good uh, food for meditation, you know. One of them is this. He says that God knew after the fall of man that our minds had become fixed on material things. 
This is something profound just to contemplate for a moment. But we see it, we see it in the very moment of the fall, don't we? And in the deception of the enemy when he deceives Eve into eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I believe Genesis says Eve, Eve saw the tree, she saw that it was delightful to the eyes, and it was good. She saw, she, I wish I had the text in front of me, I can't remember exactly, but that it was good for gaining wisdom. So she saw the tree, delightful to the eyes, so it's beautiful. She perceived it to be good for like a, a spiritual good for getting wisdom and also just on the natural level to be good for giving nourishment. She saw the good fruit, you know. But the thing is, her judgment was incorrect. She was deceived by the enemy and, her, and out of that deception she allowed her heart to be fixed on something which was not, which was not truly good for her. She misjudged it. And she ate of the fruit, which as we know, was the beginning of all of our troubles <laughs> leading up to the present day. So God the Father, He knew that the hearts of men, ever since the sin of Adam and Eve, had been fixed on material things, which are, in their way, good for us. God made them for us. Everything in creation is God's gift to us, to humanity. We're the crown of His creation. Everything else in, a, in some way exists for us. So the things in creation are truly good. God Himself says so in Genesis 1. And it was good, 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 and it was good. And then man was very good. So they're truly good, but here's the problem. When we fix our eyes on material things, we fail to look heavenward. And we become entrapped in the things of this world. The good things that God wants to give us can become snares, holding us back from the ultimate good He wants us to have, which is Himself, which is heaven eternal beatitude. And so St. Athanasius says really beautifully, he says, you know, since the fall, men had at least three ways they could turn their hearts back to God. They could simply look at the heavens. They could literally turn their eyes upward and see the stars in their vast array. And they could look around them and see the order of creation, the beauty written therein. And their hearts would be awakened to the knowledge of their Creator. That's one way. Or, since uh, the Lord sent prophets from early on in Israel's history, they could listen to the words of the prophets and they could listen to those who knew them. Or they could study the law. God gave the law from the time of Moses, the Ten Commandments. They could study the law. And then if nothing else, they could come to live a moral life and they could begin to walk in the way of perfection and the Lord would have mercy on them. But for the most part, men did not do these things. Some did. But mostly, we were indifferent. Our hearts were too ensnared by the goods of this world, by things that appeared delightful to the eyes and good for the body or the mind. And so, knowing that our hearts were ensnared by matter, God Himself became material. Knowing that our desire was for creatures like us, creatures of flesh and blood. God Himself took on our human nature. He took on flesh and blood and united it to Himself, to His divine person, becoming one of us according to our humanity. So that our desire, which was disordered, which was fixed 
on material things and creatures might thereby be fixed again on Him. See, it's beautiful to consider, isn't it? To consider the, the goodness of our God who, who, who doesn't allow us to go astray. Or rather, <laughs> He allows us to follow the whims of our hearts. But wherever our disordered hearts might lead us, there He is. He waits for us. He hides himself like that, if you will. Like in the history of Israel, when the chosen people decided they wanted a king, God says, well, hang on, I'm your king. They said, no, we want a human king, like all the other nations do. We want a human king who can really protect us. You know? You're great and all, God, but <laughs> we want a strong warrior who can defend us. So God condescends to allow them to have a human king. And of course, most of those kings are disasters for Israel. But then what ends up happening? From the line of human kings, from the line of David, God himself becomes their king again. And Jesus Christ, the God-man, descended from the line of David. So we see in this, we really see in this the providence of God. I hope you get a sense of that. The providence of God who is always acting. He's never, he's never going contrary to our free will. You know, it's not as if our free will is going in a straight line and all of a sudden God's will comes in in a perpendicular line and cuts us off and redirects us. God is working with us. He's walking with us. He's accompanying us, if you want to use the language of Pope Francis. And as we go astray, He pursues us. And through our sin, even this is what's incredible, even through our sins and through our failures, God is acting. He's not acting. He's not the, the cause of our sin, God forbid. We alone are the causes of that. But when we go astray, God does not abandon us. He remains faithful. Like Paul says to Timothy, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He has sworn a promise to us which will endure to the end of all ages. And as my professor in Hebrews class said really powerfully, the promise of God is this. You will go to hell over my dead body. Huh? That's the promise of Jesus on the cross. So my friends, what do we have to fear? Nothing. And what do we have to hope for? In Christ Jesus, everything. So thanks be to God now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. My friends, I wish you a very blessed Friday. The sun is now up. The birds are beginning to twitter. There is really oh, a stunning sunrise coming up in the east. All different colors, yellows and blues and beautiful clear whites. That's really stunning. But um, giving thanks to God for it. I have to go inside now because pretty shortly we're going to be having morning prayer, then mass with the archbishop, and then the day's off and running. <laughs> So let's conclude with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we trust that everything which occurs in our life is a result either of your will or your permission. We just want to rest in that, God. We know that, we know that as your Apostle Paul promised us, all things work for good for those who love you who are faithful to you. So God, we pray, pour out into our hearts all the gifts of fidelity 
and steadfastness and generosity. That we may adhere closely to your will. That we might hold nothing back. That we might accept all the gifts that you are giving to us. Even those occasions to grow in virtue, which might look like they're not gifts at all. Give us eyes of faith, Lord, to see the truth of the gift behind every one of those concrete circumstances of our life. Let us read the message of your love in every moment that you give us on this earth. May this day, Lord, be an occasion to give great witness to you, to your goodness and to your mercy, as your servant Timothy did. And St. Timothy, holy apostle and son of St. Paul, we ask you to pray for us that we may not surrender to timidity, but that we might be bold in proclaiming the gospel of Christ, not counting the cost, rather looking only to the good that we can share with others, which has been first given to us by him Christ Jesus, the high priest of our confession, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Son, one God, forever and ever. Amen. May God bless you, may he protect you from all evil, and may he bring you to everlasting life. Have a blessed day.